Hello and welcome to another episode of the Clockwork Aranya podcast. In today's episode, we'll be taking a retrospective look at Ronald Koeman's time in charge of the Netherlands, analysing how the KNVB went about replacing him, and of course, discussing the man that they ultimately settled on, Frank de Boer. By we, I mean myself, Finn de the guy behind Clockwork Aranya, and Dutch football journalist Peter McVitie. Peter, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure, thanks for having me. I think last time you were on, um, back in April, it feels like years ago, uh, we spoke about you know how we both thought that Ronald Koeman would leave for Barcelona after the Euros, and we spoke about who we thought would replace him, and unsurprisingly, Frank de Boer's name didn't come up. Um, but I, I think it's fair to say that even though we both expected him to leave for Barcelona, even even after the Euros were cancelled, I don't think I really ever imagined he'd leave before they ever took place. Did you? Yeah, I, I had um, a similar feeling, but um, I also didn't think it, would, it was going to be in his best interests either, considering Barcelona look just like a disaster of a club. But uh, once Setien left, it seemed that they were just going to sack him and it was hard to find any other any other options that were suitable for Barcelona, really, I think, or that they would have been interested in. So... Um, it seemed to be just for him the a move to his dream club to manage, I think. And um yeah, it was the timing worked out for for Barcelona as well. But it is a shame that he's gone before uh he had the chance to take the Netherlands to a, a, a competition because uh yeah, the well, I guess two years, but it was eighteen months of playing with the Netherlands has been quite an improvement. It's been he's been a good uh, effect. He's had a good effect on the on a national team, so it's a shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, when you you know, as you said, eighteen months. Um, you know, took the Netherlands to the Nations League final, uh, got them to their first major competition since two thousand and fourteen. But obviously, yeah, didn't stick around for it. How do you think? How do you think history is going to remember Koeman's time in charge of the Dutch? Well, he's he's not really been there long enough to do a great deal, so. Um, yeah, I think it it was always going to be just a case of improving the team from from what was there, uh, from what he started with, which was an absolute shambles. I mean, it was a, a decent squad that was playing like a, a bunch of amateurs, really, and a bunch of players who had never really been together. And he took that and actually gave them a system and gave them... Um, yeah, he brought back some sort of... Um, optimism around the national team which we hadn't had since like well for a long long time because it, you couldn't even say when Van Gaal took over there were there was there was a reason to be optimistic it was more he uh over he kind of overperformed or defied expectations um so yeah there was a there was a reason to be optimistic that had been missing for quite a long time so yeah I think they will look back on it as a as a success, but um, yeah, it's just too short, I think, because he only had like 20 games in charge. And so, yeah, it would have been different if the, if it wasn't for the coronavirus and the Euros had happened. But no. Yeah, yeah, who knows, who knows. Um, I, I mean, obviously, you know, when he came in, it, it did coincide with a lot of um, better players coming through. Van Dijk was starting to hit, you know, that kind of world-class level. Um, the young players like De Ligt and Frankie de Jong were starting to come through. And 
obviously that played a factor, but how much do you think the resurgence was down to him? Um, and wh- what do you think were the key things he did to get us back to the, uh, you know, I mean, top 10 in the world kind of place? Yeah, he actually gave some depth to the way they play. I think he brought back a kind of a game plan, really, and gave them some versatility in a way because um, a national team had been in between uh, Van Gaal's departure and Koeman taking over. Uh, a national team had been playing, as I say, they were playing like well below the level, but that was a lot of that was to do with the coaching. I mean, that's that was just crucial. Um, so I think Koeman has had quite a, a big impact. But yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of it, there, he was kind of taking over in that transition between the very end, or the very last of the the last good generation, leaving to to this the new players coming through, like Schneider going, for example, and Robin not being there as well anymore. So yeah, he's, he's had to deal to deal with that that transition between generations, and he's lucky that there are so many talented talented young players coming through. But you could see it with like the Italy game, for example, last month. It was. Um, or was it this month? Wait, <laughs> time, time, is, time is confusing for me all of a sudden. Uh, but, yeah, um, a few weeks ago we'll go for. <laughs> yeah, so it was. Yeah, so it was. I thought I was thinking I was like, it's still September, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah, you could see it in the game against Italy uh, after he left with Lodovic. It's like they had no, uh, they were just so flat all the time and so easily overrun. Um, they were really missing some discipline, tactical discipline, but also just a, a way to vary their game that they just didn't seem they just couldn't seem to come up with. They were also disconnected and you can see that there's still some juggling to do with the the actual front line. Um but yeah I think Kuman gave them focus, gave them like a, a, a game plan again and and yeah I think he, he really improved the team. Yeah I think um yeah like we say obviously it was better squad but yeah I think I, I definitely agree with you. I think his um his tactics played a big part because I mean before him we didn't really have tactics you know <laughs> for a long time I mean Chris Hiddink um, and Dick Advocat are both kind of you know man managers that kind of more old-fashioned I guess they don't really pay too much attention to it and that kind of held them back being that old-fashioned type because when you talk about being old-fashioned and from as a Dutch coach that means like trying to play some sort of or pretending to try to play some sort of four-four uh, total football sort of thing, but then it just gets narrowed down, and it just it means just playing a four-three-three with a lot of width, and uh, just it's not really a a, a playing style. It's more just uh, these a checklist of things that you you want in the, in the shape really that that they narrow it down to, and that's kind of. That's the fear about Frank de Boer for me, was that he, that's basically what uh, he declined into after his first three years at Ajax. He sort of became that rigid sort of coach. So, I mean, like when when uh, Gus Hiddick took over, the, the talk from him and the KNVB was that they're going to play exciting and attacking football and get go back to what they had been playing. But they were much more exciting and much more interesting under Van Gaal when they were playing uh, like three five two and what and whatnot. So it didn't really. It was just a 
a complete bottling from the KNVB when they appointed Tadink in it. Cumin was the one they should the one they should have been going for all along, but so we really should have had a lot longer with Cumin than we did, and that's the KNVB's fault. That's not really Barcelona's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows what could have happened? Um, yeah, I, mean, I remember. Um, I'm quite into looking at uh, past maps of teams after matches, so you kind of you know you see which players had a lot of the ball, which players they passed to, um, and a recurring thing that happened with the with the Dutch side in the you know the era of Hinnenkamplind in particular was that it was called the U shape and it's literally just centre backs passing to full backs, full backs passing to wingers and then you go back around and there's no kind of connections through the middle at all. That's like basically what the last few years of Frank de Boer's career basically since his last maybe two years, at least one year Ajax and and beyond has been that kind of actually conservative approach really instead of even though they claim it to be something else but yeah that was like huge and it, that it, also in the Eredivisie you had like these teams that would just play the it would always be the two centre backs who were the, the the biggest passers and they were just always passing it to each other <laughs> that happened a lot so it was like a it was like a, a style in, in the Netherlands for a long for quite a while uh, just the thought of going back to that it's uh yeah, not the best one, but uh, just, just this is the last word on Koeman. Um I think a lot of fans, me included, briefly before I, you know, kind of took a step back and thought about it, were quite were quite annoyed at him. You know, quite angry at him for just ditching the team and going for going to Barcelona before a major tournament. Um, you know, I think it was largely a knee jerk reaction from most of the fans because he he he'd done so well, um, and he left us in a bit of a bit of a crappy situation. But I mean, what were your thoughts on it? Do you kind of understand why he left? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that uh, it seems that Barcelona is just the the job that he's kind of always wanted. Then, although it's not really, it doesn't seem to be a good time for for Barcelona with. Uh, the chaos that's going on with Messi, the fact that they they don't seem to have any money to to buy anybody, it seems to be a, a bad situation that he's walking into. But the good thing is for him is that he he really can't fail, even if he doesn't succeed there. He can always just blame the madness that's happened that he walked into, or if he does win, he can say that he he exceeded expectations. So um, yeah, I understand. Uh, I also think there's a lot of coaches who get into national team management and realise that they don't really like it as much. They want to be working with players every single day. And that seems to be like a, a, a really big factor for a lot of coaches. Um, I can imagine he had something similar. But um, yeah, I, I completely get it. It's just one of those those things. The, the timing was all out of whack for us all because we would have had a different uh, attitude to it if, it was, if the Euros had happened this year. I think a lot of fans would have just accepted that he had won tournament and then left. I think they would have been probably fine with that. But um, it is what it is. It's, uh, I'm not happy about it, but I, I get it. If he did take charge of a tournament and then left out, you know, I think, yeah, it would be completely fine. That's pretty pretty standard for an international manager who's a bit kind of, I mean, you know, he's not, not young, but, you know, a lot of international managers you see are, you know, 70s or whatnot. So... Um, yeah, I, I think that that would be a pretty standard, but it's just um, I don't know. I guess maybe just the shock of it all, isn't it, that he's leaving before taking charge for it? There was also that fear of 
they're, the KNVB are going to mess up the replacement. I mean, we talked about that last time I was on, where we were thinking a boss would be the ideal replacement or something. But um, they, when you when he left, as he did, it seemed so difficult to actually find someone that would replace him. I mean, Frank De Boer was the last, <laughs> the kind of the <laughs> last option that we we would have hoped for. But uh, yeah, there was also that problem of it was going to take Cummins' place and, and kind of maintain this this progress that they've made and not and keep the optimism because um, he was a he was a big reason for them for any sort of optimism because it sort of made clear how important the, the coach is for a national team. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Let's dive into that their the, the search for a new manager and who they ended up with. Yeah, but just at the start of the beginning. Obviously, I mean, I think the first few weeks, no one had any bloody idea what was going to happen you know you had bookies putting like Arsene Wenger his favorite because some Dutch journalists claimed it and it's uh yeah it was just I, I think that really showed that uh not even the KMVB really had much of a clue who they're going to go for um uh, I mean I, I, I can sympathize with them a, a bit because it is a rough situation to be put in but it's hard to when you see who they ended up with but um I mean so it's generally it reported that they had three candidates that they contacted frank reichard peter boss and frank de boer in that order i think it was starting off with those three do you think they were three three good options you know that they picked out um not really i mean peter boss is obviously dynamite uh so he's he's the king for me he's, i'm fine with that uh the other two not really it just seems to be uh pointless um, there weren't any really exciting candidates named that I could see at all, really, because the other one was Hank Tinkata, which is was they said was the one that the players' uh, commission had wanted, like the leaders of the team had had said that he would be their first choice, but the KNVB didn't seem interested in him at all. So, um, and I don't think they were even really interested in Rykard and and Boss, if I'm honest, or. Um, uh, who else was mentioned? Farhal was mentioned. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think they even really bothered about them. The way Football International reported the boss thing was that basically, uh, I think it was Nico Jan Hochma called them up uh, and just like asked, was like making a, a an inquiry over his availability. And he was like, uh, I've got two years left in my contract. And like, all right, bye. <laughs> just uh, like sort of ticked him off the box and were like, right, he's not available. And uh, I don't think that, I think the Boer was kind of the one that they had they had settled on quite quickly. Boss would have been the ideal one, and but he does he would have sort of gone against their their desire to just really keep everything the same because the, a big factor for them was that they didn't want to disrupt the mood in the dressing room and the uh, the the style of a team, whereas Boss would have would have I think might have changed quite a bit, uh, and the playing style anyway. I don't really know about the middle of the dressing room, but um, I think he they weren't really interested in him bringing in the his uh, self destructive style or maybe uh, daredevil style you could call it. I think uh, so. Yeah, I think the book was actually always there the first choice. I mean, if you talk about going for Rijkaard, it just it doesn't really make sense, first of all. And um, it's also kind of a nonsense move because you, you kind of could tell that he wouldn't have gone for it. It's been so long since he actually 
was a more relevant uh, job. So, um, yeah, the Boer was probably number one all, all the way, I would, I would reckon. Yeah, I remember, um, I think it was Jack Van Helder had said that he, he'd rang up Peter Boss um, and he asked if the KMVB had approached him. Um, and boss was like, yeah, they did. They asked me if I was available. They didn't ask me if I wanted the job because if they asked me that, I would have said yes. So it's, it, it, you know, it, it it looks like that if they were willing to, you know, pay off his contract, then they could have ended up with him. And I can't, I don't, I don't see how it would be a financial reason because as far as I'm aware, they would have got a pretty hefty sum from Barcelona for Koeman. So I think it really was a case of, you know, they rang him up so they could say they rang him up, but their first choice was always Frank de Boer. Um, I, 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 don't get me wrong, Boss wouldn't be perfect. Like you said, he'd change a lot. Um, I mean, I think if, it, if he stuck on a few of the matches that Holland have played, you know, against like Northern Ireland or such, he'd probably burst out in tears. You know, it's like the complete opposite of how he wants to play. But um, and I don't know, maybe it'd be hard to implement his his kind of kamikaze style in just a, less than a year, but. I don't know, considering we ended up with De Boer, it just seems crazy that you wouldn't go for him. But um, yeah, so Frank De Boer, let's, let's uh, get into that. I mean, when when uh, the when Koeman announced he was leaving, how far down your list of candidates would Frank De Boer have been? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty low down, maybe not even on it. Yeah, I, I was not. Um, excited. It's it's bizarre that someone can fail upwards so easily, like to just completely bomb in his last three jobs, and still walk into the still be the like basically the first choice for the national team is quite staggering. I mean, it says a lot about his uh, credibility that he's got that he can just. He's, he can just fail like that and still get the top job in the Netherlands. It's um, it's pretty bizarre. It's pretty strange. So, yeah, I would have gone, like I say, I would have rather boss, obviously, but I would have explored uh, options from outside the Netherlands. I, um, I've kind of wanted them to do that for a while um, until they appointed Koeman. Obviously, that changed a lot. But um, I've always felt that they should be a bit more open to... to uh, looking abroad, but it's, it just seems to be something that they they don't really want to do. So once you that once you narrow that down, then it's um, it's hard to really find a replacement. So yeah, the Boer might have been their only choice. I guess it's just terrifying. <laughs> yeah, let's just start off. You know, taking a look at him with um, his time at Ajax, because you know if there are people that are trying to tell themselves that he's going to do a good job, they generally generally point to that because that's the only time he's well hasn't been sacked um and you know obviously you were you, you were covering the Eredivisie that time he won four titles in a row so on paper it's great but obviously that it's it's not that simple yeah I mean what were your thoughts you th- was it generally a successful spell he had at Ajax in a lot of ways or you know uh, what, what did you think of it well, he, he took charge in a, when the club was in just a, a chaotic period. It was all in the the wake of Johan Cruyff's Velvet Revolution, as they call it, where he basically, from a, a column in the Telegraph, just basically destroyed the the pen is mightier than the sword sort of thing, just destroyed the, the club hierarchy for everything, saying that this isn't Ajax, um, criticised Martin Yall, who was a coach at the time, 
and basically it all led to him the whole board resigning and uh, all these uh, elections and a special sort of uh, board, supervisory board being set up with him and like Edgar Davids and a bunch of figures. And De Boer took, went from being the Netherlands assistant coach and the Ajax youth coach to being the, just the first team uh, coach straight away in December. And so he took charge and there's just this hectic period. There's just so much madness going on and he immediately turned them into and the title winners, which is a really impressive achievement, actually, especially because he he really did change the playing style quite a lot. He the thing was that the uh, Cruyff wanted him to go back to playing like that total football style, something that obviously was sort of created at Ajax and spread all over the world essentially. Um, but um, he brought them back to like there was like a, a fluidity in their in their play. There was a lot of Swapping positions, players covering for each other. The standards seem to seem to rise. He demanded a hell of a lot from his players. Uh, so his his immediate impact was was pretty excellent. I thought um, he also wasn't scared to sort of go head to head with the leaders of the team. Like uh, Munir Alhamdou, he was ditched immediately before his the uh, Bulls' first game, which I think was in the Champions League against AC Milan. That that took a lot for a young coach to come in and just do do all that um, amid all that chaos is pretty pretty impressive. And he, he they improved. I mean, they were quality in the second season, really good in the in the third. The fourth title win, I thought, was the start of the decline. I could You could see them, them becoming a bit f- uh, flatter, a bit predictable. It was all about width and uh, that sort of U-shape sort of play that you mentioned earlier, that was, uh, that sort of started to come in. But the thing was, Ajax could still just dominate every opponent in the, in the league, basically, uh, and and get through it. So they managed to to get the title anyway. So the last season was just brutal. There was, I mean, there was like a, a genuine change in his in his playing style. They really lost the, the fluidity that they had. They just became just so dull and ineffective. And that was what made me laugh when I saw his press conference because uh, when he was appointed, I was thinking, well, that means that any time the Netherlands are going to be chasing a goal in the last 10 minutes of a game, then we're going to see Virgil van Dijk go up front for the last 10 minutes and it's going to be his, that's going to be his big tactical innovation. But he was like kind of criticising them for the Italy game because he was saying that they didn't have a plan B and that kind of made me laugh because <laughs> in his last two years at Ajax, he, that was literally his plan B, was just like stick a defender up front like Van der Holm if they were chasing a game and they, it would still be them just putting in loads and loads of crosses, uh, leaving the wingers isolated out, uh, out, out wide obviously and the striker um, being just on his own as well. It was, uh, yeah, it was it was a, a hard couple of years, I think, and especially the way they lost the title was just embarrassing for them. Like to have a team that was already relegated to Craft Shop, like just steal it from them and give it a PSV, basically in the last day of the season, was incredible. But that was that was a result of Ajax's um, and the Bulls' sort of incompetence. Um, I think, and yeah, he's he's never really recovered from then. But uh, yeah, those first 
I think three years, you could argue four. They were really exciting. I mean, at, at that time, I was convinced that he was like a special manager. He was going to go and do great things. I had really uh, high expectations for him at that point. And I think everybody did. Yeah, I mean, why, why do you think that the style changed so much in the space of a season or so? Yeah, because, oh, yeah, you mentioned that it was quite exciting in the first first couple of years. Um, and, I mean, yeah, I think he was pretty highly considered. Um, for a, Yeah, he was uh, approached for the Liverpool job, which he, yeah, and at that time, it, it seemed like an exciting appointment for Dutch football as a whole, having a manager at that kind of level. But, um I mean, yeah. What, what? What? Why do you think so much kind of fell apart so quickly? It's hard to say. I think Ajax in general at that time were kind of victims of their own success. They had, um, they were allowed. They kept on making these bizarre, just terrible signings. Like uh, when Mark Overmars and Edwin van der Sar were part of this technical harp alongside uh, Ber- well, Bergkamp was there. De Boer and Vim Young. And they were, it's like selling Christian Eriksen and buying Leren Duarte, deciding that you don't want to sign Virgil van Dijk and instead going for Mike van der Horn, who costs like double the price. Um, yeah, these sort of, they were making all these strange signings that, that didn't add anything to the team or, or robbed them of, of some creativity. Like the Ericsson Duarte one was just criminal. I mean, they they didn't have anyone who had Christian Ericsson's creativity and presence in that area until they signed Hakim Zia. Uh, so going, they just went so long without really addressing issues. Um, and it became, uh, I think it really did affect them. It became that they had to, look to the wings for that creativity but all they did was just whip in loads and loads of crosses as I say um, the attacking midfielders that were coming through like David Klassen for example yeah they weren't as creative as like Ericsson they didn't have that that amazing pass sort of that genius in them really they were more for like ghosting into the box and, and picking up on decent balls laying them off or, or scoring and so uh, that just seemed to be their their best tactic was was putting in all these crosses. But it was all for him. It was all about the the second ball. I mean, I remember asking him twice in press conferences about his obsession with crossing. And it was all at each time uh, he talked about how it was just like you want to get the ball in and then feed off the second ball, which just always seemed really. Uh, shallow to me <laughs> as like is that the best you've got is that is that is that it um and it was like they 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 just kept they would make like 30 crosses in a game and just hope for the best and a lot of times it would work like it got them a point in the i think it was a europa league game a qualifier against celtic or maybe it was a group stage i can't remember <laughs> uh, but it was it was two two and it was like a last minute goal from uh, a Lassashuna free kick and it was actually a cross but everybody missed it and it just like <laughs> hit the back of the net and it was as if that proved De Boer right for, for somehow like in his logic it just really didn't make sense to me and just that they I don't know if it was like he really changed his style a lot it seems to be that he has because he's kept it everywhere he's gone but. 
he sort of changed more of the Van Gaal sort of style than the Johan Cruyff style. He would always consider himself a, a, a scholar of both schools. But the Van Gaal one is a lot more is a lot more rigid, whereas the uh, Cruyff's total football style is built on a, a lot of changing positions and a lot of covering for each other and a lot of just constant movement, dominating the, the opponent's half, always pressing high up. Like Peter Boss's style, but um, with De Boer, when in those last couple of years, he did seem to drift more towards the Van Gaal style of everybody's got their position and, and they have to stick with it. And it, it's not really, it just was overpowered in Europe all the time. And uh, uh, after a while, the Eredivisie sort of the teams in the Netherlands sort of got wise to it and were able to cancel them out. Yeah, I mean, looking at, I mean, obviously, it's very well documented how he did after Ajax. Um, three jobs, three sackings. So just looking at you know what did what worked for him, you know the the one spell of his manager career that he was successful the first three years at Ajax. Looking at the squad he had and how he played there, um, how do you think that this this current national team squad suits him? You know, do you think it's one that he could maybe be successful with? Refine that you know fluid, fluid, successful football. Uh, if he wants to, if that's still, if he has a desire to go back to that, I think so. Um, he has said that he doesn't want to change a great deal about the the playing style that that Koeman had brought in. And that seems to be crucial for why the KNVB wanted them. They, they, they seem to have this idea of it being a very, a, just a, such a delicate balance in the dressing room that just the slightest mistake um, could just disrupt the whole thing, which I guess is true, but it's, it seems a bit, a wee bit um, dramatic. I mean, surely it can't be that fragile. But what, what can you say? So the he has the same assistance as uh, Koeman had. Uh, basically, he it's a, a like-for-like swap, they hope. Um, he said that he's just going to focus on the final details of of like matches and, and manage the dressing room and sort of... So I don't think he's going to change too much. I think it is going to be about managing it all. Um, so, oosh, it's going to... I don't know. I really... it's That's going to be crucial for him because if it if he just hasn't really learned from his mistakes in terms of his style it's going to be and he tries to bring in sort of what he was doing in that last year at Ajax or what he was doing at Atlanta United it's not going to go it's not going to go well because they're just going to be overrun pretty easily again in midfield and uh, pretty dull and and effective uh, <laughs> I think so I think he kind of has the the players now to actually make uh, give them a presence in midfield, which is what the which is crucially what um, Koeman brought back. I mean, under Hedink, for example, as well, and obviously Danny Blind, they were just complete. The midfield just wasn't there. They were just completely destroyed and rolled over by any decent team. So. I think he has to bring keep that fight in the midfield, but he can't really uh, without um, sacrificing the creativity that's there as well. So uh, I can't. I want to be optimistic, but 
I really don't have any reason to be <laughs> because, as I say, it's just like failed upwards. It's been, it seems like it's been so long, and it hasn't really. But I mean, it seems like it's been so long since he was actually good. <laughs> Whereas it's only been like five years. There's all this talk in, in the media at the moment about he's learned his lesson from being abroad, from being fired from those jobs, but. It's one of those things he has to prove it, really, instead of us having to just believe that, because that's that's one of his problems, was that he was kind of stubborn in a way. I don't think he's personally stubborn. I think he's he seems like a pretty decent and fun guy, actually. I, I think he's probably pretty cool to hang around with. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that growth that he needs to have made, um, he needs to sort of show that that's there. What do you think he's going to change? What do you think he's going to do? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm trying my hardest to be optimistic because I need to be, you know, for my own sanity. But, I mean, yeah, there's a part of me that does, I mean, looks at it and thinks, surely he's learned his lesson from from all his failures, you know. I mean, definition of insanity is just doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And, um, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, so there's a part of me that thinks, yeah, I'm sure he has. But again, that's just kind of blind faith, really. There's nothing to suggest that that's going to happen. I guess uh, young players, that's kind of a reason to maybe be hopeful. And then, you know, we we haven't really look, gone into his time as assistant manager um, of the Netherlands back when they reached the final in 2010. But, um, I mean, everybody spoke really highly of him then, didn't they? You know, apparently he was a really good kind of man-manager and bridge between the staff and the players. Yeah, I mean that was a, a, a crucial time in the, for the Netherlands. Those he was, was there for like two and a half years, I think, as the assistant. And he, as I say, he was also working at the coaching the Ajax team at the time. So, yeah, I imagine that he did learn a lot in those in those couple of years. It's just funny, isn't it? If you look at the first, uh, I guess, five years, maybe if you if you look at when he started as the national team assistant. If you look just at that, it, it, it looks like, you know, the start of a really promising career for a manager. Um, and I'm sure if he was appointed back in, I don't know, maybe 2014, although that was kind of the start of him going downhill at Ajax. Yeah, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't so obvious at that yeah, point. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember, you know, once it was announced that Van Haar was leaving after the World Cup, obviously, Hiddink was confirmed pretty quickly, but... Before that, I was I was fairly up for De Boer being given a shot, you know. So I I think, you know, there was a time when when he was a really genuinely exciting manager, and you know m- maybe you could refine that again. But I mean, it's just it's hard to get your hopes up, isn't it, when you look at how he did it into Palace and Atlanta. I mean, yeah, exactly. To to be able to fail so disastrously. And three jobs and, and walk into this is just is incredible. Uh, <laughs> genuinely bizarre. And to an extent, you, I do, the Koeman reports were kind of was sprung on them to an extent. But I think they really should have been looking at considering their options before that happened. I mean, they would have had some notice from him, surely. And... Um, once Setien was sacked, they, um, it seems clear that he was going to be sacked. Uh, Koeman seemed to be the number one candidate, so they had a bit of time, I think, to actually consider other options. But uh, so to just give it to to the Boer is, is quite a strange one. 
And yeah. it's amazing that, that like the fans were so immediately upset about that. That's the worst combination of things to happen. Like a coach like Kuman leaving early is, as you said, like frustrating and infuriating. And then for the Burt to be his replacement, it's just like an extra kick in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, the the clause was always in his contract. So much so that you know we were speaking about it on here in back in April, you know, and that was back when Barcelona still had a manager. They weren't, uh, he'd only just come in really. They weren't doing disastrously. Um, the Euros were still meant to go ahead. You know, there was no suggestion that he was going to be leaving any time. And yet we were still talking about a replacement because the clause is there. Like for the KMVB, it, it, you'd think that they'd at least, you know, maybe just hired a task force of like five people, you know, just to right keep this list just in case it does happen. And it, it just seems like that list was only Frank de Boer, really. I mean, yeah, obviously they've come in for a lot of criticism for it. And it does, you look at it and you do maybe, you know, the, the conversation's kind of going back to that, um, you know, that discussion of the structural issues at the KMVB. The, it's just a bunch of old boys who, an old boys club who want a yes man, basically. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Do you think there are a lot of issues at the top of the Dutch football Oh, for sure, for sure. I think um, the Koeman appointment kind of masked a few issues for them because the focus, the return for optimism kind of took the pressure off them. But, I mean, the way they've handled the last few uh, years has been generally pretty terrible. (laughs) Like with, you can see it in the heading appointment, the, the fact that they appointed him and had already decided that Danny Blind would replace him after a, a tournament was just a, a staggering decision. I mean, that was a, a, a real eye-opener. I mean, that was just unbelievable. It still, that still amazes me that they came they came to that decision. I just don't get it. And that they still cling on to this old-fashioned sort of idea of just uh, we have to play nice and exciting football that's what fans want it doesn't matter if you win they just want you to be exciting and and um attacking but all that means is just line up in a 4-3-3 <laughs> and uh and play with width and build up from the back but uh that that results in uh, the u-shape that you mentioned if you don't have an actual strategy to go along with it so there are like just huge issues in the KMVB and I think the, the fact that they don't have the they didn't have the imagination to look beyond like De Boer and and I, the other options as say were like to call up Rijkaard and stuff it's just if that's if you your only option is to go back then you're, you're doing something wrong, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even the Koeman appointment was, yeah, it was as a result of a mistake they made, you know. They didn't really have any choice than to go for him because, I mean, everything else had gone disastrously and everybody knew that Koeman was the best bet, really. So uh, Yeah, so, uh, he was the one who should have replaced Van Gaal because he, he, was, he was already playing that sort of formation, that sort of shape with Feyenoord at the time. He was doing it before uh, that World Cup, before Van Gaal adopted it himself. Um, so, and that kind of suggest that kind of points to the expectations that the that they had at the time, because as I say, Van Gaal exceeded the expectation. They were expected to fail that at that tournament, and then build for the future. 
uh, afterwards. Um, and if heading was always a choice for that, I mean, that's just diabolical. Um, so that, that immediately points to the, the just complete lack of imagination that they have and this warped view of how uh, managers and, and football basically goes and progresses over the years. So it's frightening. <laughs> yeah. Because they stumbled on into Koeman pretty easily. I mean, he wanted the job after Francao, but they they offered them the they, they wanted him to be the Danny Blind to who's I think the assistant. That was an insult. They're, they're lucky that he actually accepted the job when they did offer it to him. Well, uh, the last time you were on, I put you on the spot and asked you for your prediction of how of how the Dutch were going to do at Euro 2020. So uh, now, uh, a year on with a different manager, I ask you again, how do you think the Dutch are going to do in Euro 2021? Disappointingly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. The, the, the Boer factor is, is such a... A question mark really I'm so unsure of how I, I just don't know what the bill we're going to get and so my optimism is kind of gone but I feel like I should still be optimistic because I mean the squad is good there's only so surely only so bad so much that he can actually fail as with this team that it can't be drastically I mean I expect them to I don't think they'll be just a complete failure and lose every game but the expectations aren't really that great. It's not as if they're all, they were expected to win it under Koeman or even reach the final. So, again, getting beyond the group stage, I think, would be fine. Um, whereas I think before we said the semi-finals would be good. So I guess we're, I'm going to take it back a level. Uh, <laughs> but, um, that's the, yeah, they'll be average. I think his first week will be difficult. I mean with Mexico and the friendly, Bosnia, and then play Italy on the 14th, just a week after the Mexico game. So he maybe has, will have found his plan B uh, by then and actually have, make an impact. But um, it's going to be uh, an important few months after that, I think. So, uh, yeah, I'm not as optimistic as I was. Yeah, it, it's hard to be, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure both of us said Sammy's last time for Euro 2020 under Koeman. But I mean, I think this time, like you said, the squad is going to be good, assuming we don't get any mass, massive injuries. And we've got a fairly, fairly easy group, I think. And the competition isn't that strong. You know, there's I think Belgium and France are both really good. But aside from that, there's no one that's a standout team. But yeah, for me, I see it as De Boer will get the side to the first big team, which will probably be, I don't know, maybe quarterfinals and then go out there. Uh, it depends on the draw, you know. If he gets a big team in the last 16, we'll go out there. I think it's... Uh, um, I, I think the big concern is that, obviously, he signed this contract until the 2022 World Cup, which really, if you think this year is that World Cup, that's pretty much... Uh, that, that That's the chance that this generation of players is going to get at a major tournament, considering we didn't go to the 2018 World Cup. And if you've given this generation to him, I mean, do you think? What do you think the chances are of him uh, not lasting until that World Cup? Yeah, I think he'll probably see it through, uh, unless he does just so catastrophically bad that it's like um, Crystal Palace, Crystal Palace days, basically. Then I think they will just stick with him. Um, 
They, yeah, I think they will. I mean, they, they are going to review it, obviously, at times as it goes. The, the, I think they said the next time they review it will be like at the end of the Euros or just before it. Uh, so if they crash out all games lost and no goals scored or something, then yeah, maybe they'll get rid of them. But um, no, I think he, I think he'll probably see it through unless he gets a, a, does a cumin and he's uh, he's boosted his profile so much by doing so well with the national team that he just leaves before or uh, leaves quite early for a, for like Barcelona or something. <laughs> uh, then uh, I don't know, but. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, you, as I say, you don't know what the do you're going to get as the as a problem. Uh, yeah, it's a um, bit of an unknown quantity at the moment, I guess. Well, hopefully we'll know a bit more in a few weeks. Well, anyway, yeah, thanks for coming on and uh, hope it hasn't, hasn't depressed you too much uh, thinking about it. <laughs> no, it's been good fun. It's always, uh, it's always fun just uh, talking down the Netherlands and, <laughs> and being so... Uh, so down on them for a while because, uh, well, I mean, as a as a Scotland fan, this all counts as optimism for me because <laughs> I've not seen us in a tournament since. Well, I've seen us in one tournament in my lifetime. So uh, yeah, it's uh, good. It's good to talk about something with actual prospects and some. They, they've actually got something on the line, which is good. There's stakes involved instead of just oh, we're going to fail. <laughs> Debut, as you said earlier, is it going to be the debut of his first couple of years or, or his last couple of years? Whichever one is going to be, the answer to that is, uh, is absolutely uh, imperative. We just got to uh, cross our fingers, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, now, that we've, now that we've talked about it so long, I'm actually a wee bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back uh, May next year, do the Euro 2021 preview, and uh, he would have smashed it. He would have won every game in charge comfortably we'll be going in as the bookies favorites it'll be great well uh yeah again thanks very much for coming on and um yeah let's just hope that things work out better than than we expect at least <laughs> yeah thanks for having me man it's a lot of fun as always and uh thanks to all of you for listening if you haven't already done so then um yeah make sure to subscribe to the podcast on apple spotify or whatever platform it is you use you should be able to find it on any of them um and if you enjoy it then be sure to leave a review especially on apple because um yeah that'd go a really long way to helping me out um again also if you haven't done so then make sure to subscribe to the clockwork around you on twitter the at is simply clockwork around you um and yeah check out the website clockwork dot com. i'll be back for another episode soon um not 100% sure when, not 100% sure who with, but yeah, maybe uh, after the the, uh, next friendlies that are coming up. Hopefully talking about three wins. Um, So yeah, thanks again and see you soon. Bye.